Welcome to our weekly recording of the service here at Bigger and Blackmount Churches. I'm Mike Fucella, I'm the minister here, and we are so glad that you could join us. It's my prayer that you will be blessed by the message this week. If you'd like to find out more about us, please do get in touch. Contact me at biggerkirk09 at gmail.com. That's biggerkirk09, all lowercase, at gmail.com. So here's the message this week. Our first Sunday in this adventure of the Sermon on the Mount, we observed that Jesus was, was doing here a boot camp more than he was doing a sermon, a 10-minute sermon. And it's a sobering truth that boot camp or basic training is undertaken by soldiers because without it, recruits often don't survive on the battlefield. And I think that's partly behind why Jesus says what he says in the Sermon on the Mount and how he delivers this teaching. It's a boot camp. In army boot camp, you have a sergeant major, and moms and dads might remember this famous sergeant major. He's coming up on the screen. Do you remember him? And if you grew up in America like me, you'll remember this one. You probably don't. Do you remember the show Gomer Pyle? Like all sergeant majors, these two were famous for making recruits do the same thing over and over again until they got it right with lots of shouting and humiliation of the recruits. Those things that they were told to do over and over again were perhaps an obstacle course or it may be taking a rifle apart and putting it back together. The sergeant major gets their recruits to practice over and over again. And like a sergeant major, Jesus was concerned for the survival of his disciples. And so he taught them. He didn't shout at them and he didn't humiliate them. But the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes as part of the Sermon on the Mount will help all of us as Jesus' disciples to prepare for the coming battle or for the battle that we fight right here and right now. Like a sergeant major, Jesus wants his teaching to become our second nature. He wants us to practice and practice and practice. Let's practice once again learning the Beatitudes that we learned last week using the technique of that five-year-old girl named Ellie. Let's stand and let's try to remember these Beatitudes. Okay, one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And two, two, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Three, three, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit, that's an E, 
the kingdom, that's a crown of, they shall inherit the, sorry, wait. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit, that's a crown, the earth. Okay, get it right, Mike. (laughs) Next, number four. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. Okay, and five. Blessed are those who show mercy. Mercy will be shown to them. Okay, this is my favorite one. You remember this one? Six. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then seven. Five and two. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God, coming together as the children of God, making peace with others. And then eight, blessed are those, five and three, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They escape that persecution and they achieve the kingdom of heaven. Great, wonderful. I shall call on you during the week if I see you in the street and ask you to do that for me. You may be seated. There are other ways that we, we learn um, and remember and practice. And uh, one of those ways is by singing. And this week, a group of us have sung a, a setting of the Beatitudes. It's called Blessed Are They. And I really appreciate all those who who volunteered to help with this song. Let's listen to it. Blessed are they. So before we reflect on our scripture, we probably need to read it. So Maggie, could you come and read the scripture? You probably had to go back a few slides. Sorry, I missed that one out. This is reading from Matthew chapter 5 to 12, Sermon on the Mount. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading. Are we coming through on the... Okay, great. 
Let's, let's pray as we turn to reflect on God's word. Lord, such familiar words to us, but so rich and deep in meaning and so lacking of practice in Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would help us to not only hear these words, but to make them part of who we are as those who follow you, as those who desire to be made, remade in your image. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this Sunday, we're still looking at these Beatitudes. Last Sunday, we looked at only one of the Beatitudes, and we, we recognized that that was a key Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we noted that the Beatitudes, as is the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, sat within the context of the whole ministry of Jesus. His ministry to liberate the world from sin and death through his gracious sacrifice on the cross. And this first beatitude sums up by recognizing that only through dependence on God, by knowing our need for him as Savior and Lord of our whole lives, can we ever Can we ever possibly find a place in that promised kingdom? So bearing in mind that first key beatitude this Sunday, I'm hoping that we're going to look at all the rest of the beatitudes. It cannot be stressed too much that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God was the theme that Jesus preached from day one of his ministry. And that the kingdom is the core theme of these Beatitudes and of the Sermon on the Mount, of which they are a part. I love the Bible Project videos, and one in particular has helped me to understand what Jesus meant when he said, when he talked about the kingdom of heaven. It's that video about heaven and earth. You'll find a a link in the description of the video if you're watching at home or in our weekly email for everyone else. Let me give a brief summary of that video. Way back in Genesis, before the fall, we have this picture of heaven and earth overlapping because everything was good Heaven, where a good God dwells, could touch earth. And earth could touch heaven. And they both could live together symbiotically. But when sin came into the world because of disobedience, it was no longer possible for these two realms to exist together. And so they were driven apart. Heaven and earth driven apart. But to cut a long story short, God's plan was always about bringing heaven and earth back together again. 
so that God will be able to dwell in the creation that he has always loved and longed to be with. And that was what Jesus was all about. Jesus came as God in the flesh to do away with sin once and for all by taking the punishment of our sin on the cross and opening a way for all of humanity to draw close to God in what he called the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, the place where heaven and earth are once again fully reunited. So heaven is not a place where you go when you die. It's not just a place that you go when you die. It is, according to God's word, the renewal of all things. The renewal of a new heaven and a new earth made new by God's, what God graciously did through Jesus. Our place when we die, when God brings all things together, is the earth, the new earth. We're not going to float away to heaven. God is going to renew all things. And the kingdom above all is the place where the king is. And God, the king whom Jesus reveals to us, is a loving father, cares deeply for all he has made, including each and every one of us. Let's go back to that chart that we had up on the screen last Sunday as we dive into part two of the Beatitudes. Here are eight Beatitudes. Let's look at the right-hand column first. These are what is being promised there in the right-hand column to those who are described in the left-hand column, the blessed. These promises made for what uh, Jane on Tuesday night called a sandwich. I like to call it, after reflecting on what she said, a kingdom sandwich. Please indulge me a, a, a little description here. The kingdom of heaven is a sandwich. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first and the last promises declare. That's the bread of this mega sandwich. And in between is the magnificent filling of the kingdom, the substance of the kingdom. This is a very substantial and tasty sandwich indeed. Look at the filling going down that right-hand column of, of that chart that we have the kingdom of sandwich the, the kingdom sandwich is full of comfort maybe it's a bit like having four different kinds of cheese it's got luscious layers of land as a possession as a promise it's got slabs of satisfaction that will fill you up it's got lashings of the tangy sauce of of mercy and it's not just a sandwich that tastes good. It's also a beauty visually. Look at the sandwich you get 
looking at this sandwich, you get more than a glimpse of the master sandwich maker who put it all together. You see none other than God himself. And those who eat the sandwich get a name, Jesus tells us. They are called the children of God. They probably get a t-shirt to that effect. I got the sandwich of the kingdom of heaven, and I ate the whole thing emblazoned across their chest. Who wouldn't want to eat such a sandwich? Who wouldn't want to live in such a kingdom that Jesus describes here in the right-hand column? It is this submarine sandwich of the kingdom that Jesus is serving us in these Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount and in his whole ministry. It is the sandwich of the kingdom that he offered to the crowd that day on the mountainside and he offers it to each and every one of us in every age who will follow him. It is this consolation of the kingdom that will see Jesus' followers through whatever battles lie ahead in their lives. But look, if you will, at the left-hand column. Here is where the battle comes in. Not nearly so tasty. The situation of the blessed that Jesus describes in this left-hand column for us is tough. Situation of the blessed is downright painful and difficult. Poor in spirit, we've talked about that already. Whether it is economically poor or being needy spiritually, it is a challenging situation to be poor. And then we have those who mourn. What Jesus means by this is is not just those who have lost loved ones, though that is part of what it means. But what Jesus means are those who are not satisfied with the way that this world is. Those who are blessed, those who mourn, recognize that things are not right. They recognize that things are not right in their own hearts in their own lives and in the world around them. Those who mourn have what C.S. Lewis called that inconsolable longing. They acknowledge all the cracks in what is, at the end of the day, a broken and decaying world. Those who mourn experience joy and love and life and laughter in this world But deep down, those who mourn long for something more. They long for something that is lasting, something that is eternal and pure and true. Thirdly, Jesus says, blessed are the meek. What does that mean? What does meekness mean? Well, meekness is part of Jesus' own self-description when he encourages people to learn from him. He says that unlike a sergeant major, he is gentle and humble in heart. He is meek and humble in heart. 
Meekness in the Bible does not mean what the Merriam-Webster dictionary defines it as. It is not docile, overly compliant, spiritless, yielding, or tame. Jesus was none of those things. Jesus was no pushover. But what Jesus was, was concerned for others. And it was Jesus' concern for the welfare of others, his concern for you and me that drove him in his life and ministry. And ultimately, it is what drove him to the cross. Meekness, as ex- meekness also expressed itself in what one's caller says was Jesus' decided strength disciplined calmness. It was not easy for Jesus to be meek in the face of opposition. And it will not be easy for his disciples. We are all tempted to defend ourselves when our backs are up against the wall. But meekness means that more often than not, we let it go. If we are right, God knows, and he will ultimately have our backs. Meekness for us as disciples is partly born of the understanding built on the first two Beatitudes. We know we are poor in spirit. We know that we are needy, that in and of ourselves we are not complete And two, we know that we are part of a broken world for which we mourn. Because of these two, we will cut other people slack. We will be meek. There's a connection horizontally in this chart between the character of the blessed and the nature of the kingdom. So between what we have in the left-hand column and what's in the right-hand column. And in this beatitude about meekness, because the disciple knows that in Christ and his kingdom, he will surely possess all things, that he or she will inherit the earth, he or she does not need to grasp things. Later in the sermon, Jesus will say, If someone takes your shirt, give him your coat as well. That is something that only the meek can do. In the fourth beatitude, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Jesus' emphasis is here, I believe, is more on the heart than it is on the pure, though he is talking about both. In the Gospels, Jesus was always going up up against this group of people called the scribes and the Pharisees. For them, the most important thing was outward purity. Jesus, throughout the Sermon on the Mountain and all his teaching, helps his disciples to see that the problem is not abiding closely to the letter of the purity laws of the Old Testament as the scribes and Pharisees saw it, so much 
as problem of the human heart. Our problem is not that we don't wash our hands. Our problem is that our hearts aren't right. Get your heart right, get a pure heart, and everything else will be taken care of as our actions and our attitudes flow from our hearts. The pure heart is a heart that is transparent. The pure heart is a heart that is sincere and truthful. The pure in heart see God because the opaque lenses that darken the eye of their hearts has been removed. The fifth beatitude is that the blessed show mercy. And in the kingdom they will receive what they show to others. Mercy is expressed in giving to those who have a need. And not always asking questions of their motives and why they are in a place of need. Mercy is also shown in forgiving others when they have wronged you. This quality of the disciple of Jesus, too, will come up later in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus speaks of forgiven, being forgiven and forgiving others. Moving on, the sixth beatitude speaks of the blessed as being those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness. It's a word that comes up often in both the Old and the New Testaments. It's a word that will come up again later in the Sermon on the Mount. I hope you're seeing here, this is the beginning. This is the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And lots of the themes that Jesus will cover in the Sermon are covered here in the Beatitudes as well. Much ink has been spilled down through the centuries by Christian scholars as to the meaning of that word righteousness. Although the jury is still out, I side with those who say that basic to the biblical definition of righteousness is the idea of right relationships. Righteousness at its very core is about being in right relationship with God and with other people people so what jesus is saying here is that the blessed the blessed have a a visceral a literal hunger and thirst for right relationships between themselves and god and between themselves and others painful hunger until you can get right with people and get right with god The seventh beatitude has to do with peacemakers. In a world where most people want to avoid conflict at all costs, the disciples of Jesus are to be peacemakers. Peacemakers are those who stand in the breach between two or more conflicted parties. They stand in the breach trying to bring understanding and reconciliation. They put themselves in places whether they are invited or not, they put themselves in places to be peacemakers. And they put themselves there to try as best they can 
to reflect truth from and to both sides or all sides. This, again, is a hard thing to do. Being a peacemaker, being in the middle, you can very easily come under fire from all sides. Much easier to avoid conflict like we love to do. Part of our culture. But Jesus here is introducing an upside-down kingdom. Countercultural. Peacemakers are called children of God because as biological children take after their parents, so peacemakers take after their father God who himself is a peacemaker. What God in Christ has done and is doing is to make peace between us and himself, between us and whoever we are in conflict with. And then finally is the eighth beatitude that extends into a ninth one. Blessed are those who are persecuted. This beatitude, I think, is intended as a summary for all the beatitudes that have gone before. And it's the only one, as someone pointed out on Tuesday night, that identifies the blessed specifically as followers of Jesus. In this beatitude, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult you because of me. Although other people who are not Jesus' disciples can, of course, suffer and be remarkably virtuous as per this list of beatitudes. Although they can be that way, Jesus summing up in this last beatitude is saying to his disciples that the suffering that they endure and the virtue that they should express when they are his disciples will never be in vain. The list on the left-hand side of our Beatitudes is, as I said before, tough. Apart from Jesus himself, I don't think I've ever met anyone who truly lives up to them. I've met some who come close. But it is tough to be a disciple. Sooner or later, being a disciple of Jesus is going to land you in a lot of trouble. That is Jesus' promise. Doesn't just make it here in the Beatitudes, but all over his teaching. And it's a promise not just for the early disciples or for folks on the other side of the world. It's a promise for us too. We will have trouble. And if that promised trouble never comes our way, it's a sobering thought that we may very well not be following Jesus as we should. What is the point? If we have all this trouble, what is the point? If living the way of Jesus is only going to bring us trouble, what is the point? Well, the point, my friends, is the kingdom, that sandwich 
Jesus has given us the kingdom, though it has not fully come. It is a promise, a solid promise. In Christ, the kingdom has begun to dawn, the kingdom of God. This that is described in that right-hand column is going to last. It is what really brings enduring comfort and full satisfaction compared to all that is fleeting in this life. The kingdom is the place where justice and mercy will prevail. And just as the kingdom and its ways cause conflict for Jesus, they will cause conflict in our lives in our own hearts, in our relationships with others, and with the prevailing culture around us. But in the end, living for the kingdom is worth it. But how do you, de- how do you deal with the impossible demands of the kingdom outlined here in this left-hand column of the Beatitudes and elsewhere in Jesus' teaching. I've talked to various people over the last couple of weeks who've been reading through the Sermon on the Mountain in preparation for our series here. And they come to the conclusion that they don't match up. They come away sad. They read the Sermon on the Mount and they read about divorce and they say, I've been there. They read, blessed are the meek, and they know that they are not meek. They read, blessed are the peacemakers, and they know they are in conflict with someone else, and it seems like it's impossible to get out of that and to be a peacemaker. Is that really how Jesus wants us to feel coming away from reading his word Does he want us to feel as if we failed? How do we answer that? Well, I think we need to go back to that image that we looked at in the first week. Can we have that up on the board? You remember this image. These are all the folks that were around Jesus that day. All these people in different rings around Jesus from the disciples to those who were attracted to those who were decidedly against and suspicious. All the folks in these different rings around Jesus on hearing these words of Jesus in the Beatitudes probably thought the same as us. They were all most probably saying to themselves, this is impossible. But Jesus' answer is to say what he says in that passage that we referred to already. And in John 15, 5, he says to us, us who are feeling failures, when we read his teaching and when we we see the the, uh, aspirations that are required of us, In the kingdom, he says, come to me. Whether you're on the inner ring or the outer ring, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, take my teaching upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For this yoke of mine is easy, and my burden is light, but it doesn't seem easy, does it? But let's join that up with the next verse in John 15, 5 where Jesus says to us, I am the vine. You are the branches. And if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. You will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And the corollary to that is with me, you can do everything. You can be all that I call you to be when I am with you. You see, Jesus never expected anyone to live for the kingdom on their own. Living for the kingdom gets easier as we live it together as the family of God's people, the church. But even more importantly, living for the kingdom can only be lived as we come closer to Jesus. And it can be lived. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the 20th, 20th century martyr, as he reflected on this passage, said, with every beatitude, the gulf is widened between the disciples and the crowd, those on that inner circle and those on the out. And their call to come forth from the crowd becomes increasingly manifest. You see, you can't follow Jesus unless you are close to Jesus. His teaching is not just a set of principles. Jesus' teaching is meant to be part of a relationship. And life as it is meant to be lived just doesn't work unless you are connected with God through Jesus. That is how God always intended it to be. Let's consider God's call to us in these two verses to come near to him as his disciples. Let's contemplate his call as we listen to our hymn of response, the hymn, Nearer, My God, to Thee. In our service, we would normally have a, a big plate up here with all our offerings on it, brimming over with our envelopes and notes and uh, coins. And we would also dedicate ourselves and those offerings to God. Well, we're not able to give in the same way, but I know for a fact that people are still giving, and I appreciate that. And so we still dedicate our gifts, and we still get, dedicate the givers to God. Let's do that now. Everlasting Father, thank you that you are the light of the world, guiding our steps on your path. Your word says that the earth is yours and everything in it. 
the world and all its people belong to you. We recognize everything we have belongs to you, and we acknowledge that our very lives belong to you. We now offer back to you a portion of what you have given us. May God the Father prepare our journey. Jesus the Son guide our footsteps. And the Holy Spirit watch over us on every path that we follow. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord God, we bring before you now prayers for our world and for ourselves. In and of ourselves, we don't know how to pray. We don't know where to begin. We in our world are in such need. But Jesus, you taught us that the best place to begin is the fact that we have a loving Father. God, you are our Father. And you promise to hear us when we call. And you promise to look after our needs. That indeed you know our needs even better than we know them ourselves. So by your Spirit, Lord God, we ask you to guide our praying now and in this coming week. Bring to mind now things and people that we should make a priority in these, our intercessions. And in the silence, we wait on you, Lord. Speak to us. And also in the silence, we lift before you those people and places that lay heavy on our hearts. Lord God, bring, in, bring your kingdom into each and every circumstance for which we pray. In that final beatitude, you said, blessed are those who are persecuted, insulted, and, and lied about because of you. And so we remember brothers and sisters who were persecuted for their faith and for standing up in your name for the things that you care about. We remember your suffering church in Iran, North Korea, Eritrea, Sudan, China, and in so many other places around the world. May they know deep in their spirits the kingdom and the king are theirs.
May that strengthen them and sustain them today. And finally, Lord, we pray for ourselves. Draw us ever closer to your side. May we be so close. May we so study you that your ways of seeing and speaking and acting will be reflected in us. Lord, be pleased to draw others to yourself through us this week as we display the character of our king and our kingdom. For we ask these things in the name of our one Lord and Savior, even Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.